Well, good evening, EV Free. <laughs> After that video, uh, you know, we, we showed that video briefly because as a church, we have taken on a mantle this summer of sending between 20 and 25 teams to Europe and sending hundreds of people, young and old, overseas uh, to simply carve out a section of their summer to say, hey, for one week, for two weeks, for 10 days, I, I want to carve out some time to going overseas to serve, uh, to see what God not only is doing there, but to see how I can be formed as a disciple. Whenever Jesus talks about discipleship, he says, discipleship is in our backyard, but it also extends to the nations. And so for me, I remember growing up in the church and having multiple opportunities to go overseas on short-term trips. And I have no doubt that our trips did something significant in the nations that we went to. But I, as an individual, as a disciple, have been deeply formed by the trips that I've been on and have encouraged me uh, to live differently back at home. So uh, we want to encourage you, even if you're interested in going on a trip, you don't have to be a yes person right now. You could just say, hey, I'm curious what the trips are. We have trips going to Athens, to Berlin, to Ukraine, to London. We got like 25 trips going out. If you're even curious and it sparks your interest uh, outside of these doors after service, uh, we're going to have people uh, from these teams represented that would love to speak with you and just give you details, give you trips, give you dates, uh, give you all kinds of information. Uh, I would encourage you to check it out. Um, our missions pastor also gave us a few shirts to pass out. So we got two shirts. Um, who wants a white Love Europe t-shirt? Dude, this is all you right here. Katie Miller, you want to you hand that back to him? I'm going to give you our best shirt. And then the gray one, who wants a good, good, that's what I'm talking about. And if you guys need a different size, we're so generous here. We'll swap it out for a different size. I know, just going above and beyond for y'all. Uh, well, hey, if this is your first time here, uh, my name's Austin Helm. I'm one of the teaching and venue pastors here. Uh, and just to switch uh, gears a little bit, I have to say I love celebrations. I, I love times to celebrate good things that happen and just to do a little bit of audience participation. What are some of your favorite celebrations throughout the year? Birthdays. Who else? Easter. Easter. Who else? Christmas, yes. Who else? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, yes. There are all kinds of events and times during the year when we get to celebrate. Uh, I was thinking about different celebrations this year, and, and one interesting one kind of crossed my mind. It was pep rallies. How many of you growing up in high school had a pep rally at your school? Just a raise of hands. Most of us from all generations have at least been to one pep rally. Now, growing up in Oklahoma, I was the class president, which meant that the burden of planning pep rallies fell on my shoulders and my team's shoulders. And I knew that there was no detail that could go overlooked. Now, uh, pep rallies had one really great upside, which meant we got out of school for two hours on a certain day to go cheer for our teams. This was a great thing. Now, the 50-50 of these was sometimes you went to a pep rally for a team you just knew wasn't going to win. Have you ever been to one of those pep rallies? You're like You go, you show up, and you know your baseball team just isn't good and you're not going to win, but you're happy to be out of class. But then others of you have been to a pep rally that you just know your team is going to win. There's actually enthusiasm because maybe your football team is deeply competitive and you're going to compete in the state championship game. Whenever you go to these pep rallies, there's a certain, a certain energy in the air. Now, what's even better than pep rallies is what we might call celebration rallies. It's that rally that after you go to the big game, 
after you go to the city title, after you go to the state title and win, you gather the entire school together to celebrate the team. You celebrate the coaches, you celebrate the quarterback, you celebrate the pitcher, you celebrate the entire team. It's an amazing time because one, you get a class again, uh, but more importantly, you get to celebrate victory. How many Broncos fans do we have in the house? Carl Camp, I knew we'd have one. We got a few others. If you watched the Broncos win the Super Bowl, you knew that a few days later they were going to go back to Denver and they were going to have a celebration rally. They were going to have a giant parade to celebrate Peyton Manning and Brock Osweiler and the team and all the coaching staff. There's something about pep rallies that we really enjoy. And and tonight in our scriptures, we're going to find what we might um, refer to as a first century celebration rally, a first century pep rally. If you've been with us for a couple of weeks now, uh, you know that we're in preparation for Easter. Easter is next week, and we won't have a 5 p.m. service on Sunday night. Instead, we're going to do 5 p.m. on Saturday night. Uh, but we're preparing to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And in order to get ready for that, we've been doing a series called Jesus, a vision for the church. And we've been unpacking a few different areas of the life of Jesus. Two weeks ago, we talked about the birth of Jesus and how Jesus, it wasn't just the birth of any normal infant. When the text talks about the birth of Jesus, it talks about the birth of a king. And this king, knowing he's a king, when he enters into his teaching ministry, he goes around all of the area proclaiming not just the good news of God, he goes around proclaiming the kingdom of God. The kind of life that accompanies those who pledge their allegiance to King Jesus. And and then today, uh, as we move into Good Friday, which is this Friday at 7 p.m. and Easter after that, uh, we're talking about one of the most significant markers of the life of Jesus. You see, the Gospels are interesting. Uh, Many of you who are um, a part of a family or you're married or you have great friends, if you surveyed your marriage or if you surveyed your family, or if you surveyed your group of friends, uh, there's no doubt that there would be different moments in time that were more significant to the other. Maybe your wife remembers that one moment, and as a husband, you think, oh, that's interesting. That didn't, I mean, I remember that, but that really resonated with you. The opposite is also true. The husband may say, man, I remember that moment. The wife is like, really? That's, that's great. The same is true of families and of friends. There, there are moments that we remember that we all remember on varying levels. The gospel accounts are the same way. Uh, they reflect and they remember the life of Jesus from different perspectives. Uh, for instance, Matthew and Luke are the only gospels that talk about the birth of Jesus. Mark and John don't. And even when Matthew and Luke talk about the birth of Jesus, Matthew emphasizes the good news to the shepherds and Luke emphasizes the good news to the wise men. As you read the gospel accounts, you can find some things that are present in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but they're not in John. You can find things that are only in John and Mark, but not in Matthew and Luke. But there are certain things that all of the gospel writers consider fundamental and foundational to the life of Jesus. They can all agree, yes, this was a major mile marker in the life of Jesus. Throughout the church calendar, this event has been known as Palm Sunday. 
as we enter into Holy Week, leading up to the Passion on Good Friday and Easter later. In fact, all of the Gospels recount this event of Palm Sunday. This is on the iPad, and every single Gospel account remembers that Jesus comes to Jerusalem as a king. Matthew chapter 21, Mark chapter 11, Luke chapter 19, and John chapter 12 all remember this event specifically. That Jesus was a king that was returning to Jerusalem. In fact, this is one of the great hopes of the Old Testament. That Yahweh would return to Zion and would install his king on the throne once again. And this king would be known as the Messiah. And so on Palm Sunday, we remember this first century pep rally. This first century celebration as Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. But in the same way in sports, you can't just have a pep rally to have a pep rally. You got to have a pep rally because it's the culmination of what's come before it. So in fact, last week as we talk about the good news of Jesus proclaiming the kingdom of God to all of Israel, it culminates in this moment of Jesus being born as a king, proclaiming the kingdom of God, and now as king, he moves towards Jerusalem. But in order to understand this event, we have to understand the event that comes right before it. In Mark chapter 10, it it talks about a man named Blind Bartimaeus. When Mark talks about this celebration of Jesus becoming king, it comes on the tail end of this significant healing miracle. You see, Blind Bartimaeus was out of sorts. When it came to society, he was on the lowest rung of the ladder. You see, being blind, they believed that you were blind because you were being punished for your parents' sin. And as a result, you were also considered unclean, so people didn't want to be around you. You were, you were uneducated and unable to hold a job, and you weren't really a part of a family because of the way that you were separated from them. And so as a blind person, oftentimes you, you would try and find the largest city that you could, and you would simply sit at the gates of the city. It's where the shepherds came in and out. It's where the merchants, the buyers, the sellers, the traders came in and out. It's where the most money passed through the city. And so in the first century, these blind folks, they, they would sit at the gates with a cloak over their lap, simply begging for money. But on this particular day for blind Bartimaeus, his life is about to radically change. You see, all of a sudden he's sitting at the gates and he's blind, so he can't see anything. But he begins to feel the swell of something happening. The shuffling of a multitude of feet, uh, the murmurs of people getting excited that somebody was going to teach at the gates. And as these murmurs began to rise, Bartimaeus catches the name Jesus of Nazareth. This is a massive moment for blind Bartimaeus because he knows that if, that if Jesus of Nazareth is at the gates, it means that Jesus is about to leave the city to head for Jerusalem. In fact, it's exactly what the Gospels count, is that blind Bartimaeus is at the gates, and Jesus is at the gates of Jericho about to leave for Jerusalem. But at this time, this is the climax of the fame of Jesus. At no point in time will Jesus be more famous than at this time. Oftentimes, throughout the Gospels, uh, it talks about multitudes and crowds gathering around Jesus. When the gospel accounts talk about the kind of crowd that gathers around Jesus at this point and moving forward, it talks about the largest crowd that Jesus had ever seen. 
And so you have blind Bartimaeus, and he knows the reputation of Jesus. He knows that Jesus contains the power, the will, and the desire to radically change his life. And what blind Bartimaeus wants more than anything is blind Bartimaeus wants to follow Jesus. He wants to be the kind of disciple that can follow Jesus from the gates of Jericho to Jerusalem. But being blind, he won't be able to do that. The folks don't have enough compassion or drive to carry Bartimaeus along the way from Jericho to Jerusalem. So you have Jesus at the city gates, and Jesus would have been at the gates, and when he's there, he would pause to teach. Oftentimes when rabbis would come into a city, uh, they would dwell there for a while, eating with different folks in different houses and teaching in various synagogues. But before they would leave the city, it was their biggest teaching moment. Because once they left Jericho for Jerusalem, the crowd of people that would follow would begin to slowly string into one long line on a march. And so Jesus stands at the city gates, surrounded by his 12 disciples, and surrounded by what the gospel accounts uh, declared the largest group that has been around Jesus to date. And Jesus begins to teach. Bartimaeus not knowing exactly what to do, wants to get the attention of Jesus, but he's in the back of the crowd. He has no real way to get to Jesus. This is a time when you didn't have screens to put information on. You didn't have microphones to project a voice. And so you can imagine Jesus with his 12 disciples and hundreds of people crowded around Jesus. They are trying to be as quiet as possible to hear every word that would come off the rabbi's lips. Blind Bartimaeus, not knowing what to do, he yells at the top of his lungs, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the minute he does that, the crowd turns around and they reprimand blind Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus, be quiet. We are trying to listen. But blind Bartimaeus believes something about Jesus. Blind Bartimaeus believes that not only is Jesus a son of David, he is the son of David. The kind of son of David that will one day be king. The kind of son of David that has the ability now to heal his blind eyes. So blind Bartimaeus doesn't shy away. He yells again at the top of his lungs, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The crowd turns around again and reprimands blind Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus, what are you doing? Why are you interrupting this rabbi? They turn around again to to listen to Jesus, but blind Bartimaeus will not be swayed. He yells one more time at the top of his lungs, Jesus, son of David, king of Israel, Messiah of God, have mercy on me. Me. The crowd turns to reprimand Bartimaeus one last time until Jesus silences the crowd. He says, Bring the man to me. The rebuke of the crowd turns into great cheer. They approach Bartimaeus and say, Bartimaeus, he's calling for you. He wants to see you. And so Bartimaeus is picked up and he's carried to Jesus because Bartimaeus is making these radical claims about the kingship of Jesus. Bartimaeus finds himself in a place that he could have only dreamed of 
right here at the feet of Jesus with the undivided attention of this future king. And Jesus says, Bartimaeus, what do you need? What do you want? Bartimaeus says, I want to follow you. When you leave with all of these people, I I don't want to be stuck here at these gates. Jesus, I want to go with you. And I want to be a part of the people that bring you in as King Jesus. I want to see. Jesus says, Bartimaeus, your faith has healed you. And the text says that immediately the eyes of Bartimaeus are opened. And the text says that Jesus and his 12 disciples and these hundreds of people that have gathered around him and now blind Bartimaeus who has new life, they begin to march towards Jerusalem. Now this would have been such an interesting march. It it, it was a prophetic kind of march. There's whispers, there's rumors that Jesus is king. And in the Old Testament, the people of Israel believed that when their king would come, he would march into Jerusalem and take his place on the throne. In other words, Yahweh would return to Zion. Yahweh would return to Jerusalem. And so you have Jesus with this entire band of folks that are marching with him and what they believe will be the coronation of Jesus as the king of the Jews, the Messiah of God. And so they begin to walk the desert and they're they're just a few miles outside of Jerusalem and Jesus, he stops the crowd. And the crowd's thinking, why are we stopping? We can't stop until we get to Jerusalem. And Jesus calls a few of his disciples together. He says, now you two, uh, I want you to go to the nearest town. And keep in mind, the hundreds around him can't hear this. But, but you disciples, I want you to go to the nearest town. I want you to find a donkey and a colt that have never been ridden. And I want you to bring them to me. The only thing the crowd sees is these two disciples scurry off in the direction of the nearest town. And as they wait in great anticipation, knowing that they are on the march to crown Jesus as king, they see the disciples returning with a colt and with a donkey. And when the crowd would have seen this, their excitement level would have rose to almost unbelievable measures. I mean, seeing Jesus being proclaimed king, now marching towards Jerusalem and having a colt and a donkey comes towards him was fulfilling all kinds of Old Testament prophecy. This was, in fact, it goes back to Genesis. They believed their king was going to come out of the tribe of Judah. This is Genesis chapter 49, verses 10 to 11. It says, the scepter... The scepter is a a kingly item. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. This is the idea of royalty. But more specifically, as much as the gospel writers are alluding to this, they specifically recount Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. 
Now, in order to understand what the writer is saying, we, we kind of have to understand the context of what's going on here. When, when Zechariah is prophesying, he's, he's prophesying about a future event in which the entire region is under the control of Darius and Persia. But, but he speaks about a ruler that will come named Alexander the Great, and he speaks about the conquests of Alexander the Great with great detail. In fact, from Zechariah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, uh, the writer mentions all of these cities on the screen as cities that this future ruler will conquer. Hundreds of years later, Alexander the Great will go on this exact route to conquer all of these cities. But then verse 8 says something Deeply interesting. Verse 8 says, But I will encamp around Israel, and no army will march on Israel. I will keep it safe from oppressors. Now, at the time when the high priest sees Alexander the Great and his army coming towards him, he's terrified. So he goes into the temple in Jerusalem and he begins to pray and he gets great confidence to approach Alexander the Great. And so Josephus, a first century historian that scholars that are secular and Christian alike refer to as deeply credible history, he he records this event between the high priest and Alexander the Great. In the picture, it has Alexander the Great and his massive army, and they are raging. They are ready to tear down the walls of Jerusalem. And this high priest, dressed in white, comes out with the fellow priests of the temple, holding the scrolls of the Old Testament. And when he walks out there, Alexander's army stops in its tracks. The most amazing thing happens. In fact, Josephus records his words. Uh, when, When they decide not to attack Jerusalem, one of the officers of Alexander asks him, Why did you obey the high priest? Why did you adore and give honor to the high priest? And Alexander the Great says this, I did not adore the high priest, but I adored that God who has honored the high priest with the high priesthood. For I had a dream. I had a dream and I saw this very person in this very place when I was at Dios in Macedonia, who when I was considering with myself how I might obtain the dominion of Asia. And when he has this dream, he has the, the, the vision to move around the city and to not attack the city. It continues. And now I'm seeing the person that I saw in my dream and remembering my vision and the exhortation I had in the dream to march around. I believe that now by honoring the God who has given this high priesthood, I bring my army under divine conduct and shall therewith conquer Darius and destroy the power of the Persians and that all things will succeed according to what was in my own mind. These are the words of Alexander the Great as he chooses not to destroy Jerusalem. Why? Because Yahweh was encamped around the city. And know that when Alexander the Great approaches the city of Jerusalem with his army, he's riding a war horse. And his officers and commanders next to him are riding war horses. And behind their war horses are chariots and weapons. And then following this moment, Zechariah the prophet in chapter 9 verse 9 talks about what the king of Israel will be like. 
It won't be the kind of king that rides war horses. It won't be the kind of king bent on violence. Instead, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, but humble, lowly, riding on a donkey and on a colt. Hundreds and hundreds of years later, when the multitude of people are in the desert with Jesus and they believe that he's becoming king and they see the colt and they see the donkey coming before Jesus and they see Jesus get on top of the donkey, their excitement is ecstatic because this is the moment they have always been waiting for. This is when Israel will be restored and the king will heal the people of God. And so the multitude around him, they begin to take off their cloaks and throw it down before the donkey and the colt. It comes from 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13, when Jehu became king. It says that the people around Jehu, they quickly took their cloaks and they spread him under the bare steps. Then they blew the trumpet and they shouted, Jehu is king. By this crowd throwing down their cloaks, they are declaring Jesus is king. And then in the text, you find that not only are they throwing their cloaks down before the donkeys and the colts, they they begin to take palm branches, laying down palm branches. It it recounted an event just a hundred years before during the Maccabean revolt. The Maccabean revolt was during a time when the descendants of Alexander were not as kind to Israel. Uh, They began to oppress Israel and not allow them to worship in their ways. And so a pious group of folks known as the Maccabeans, they take up arms and they push the descendants of Alexander the Great out of the city. The, The revolution is successful for a time. And it says this in one of the historical documents. This is a document written between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's a historical document that says, And on the 23rd day of the second month in the year 171, there was a great celebration in the city because this terrible threat to the security of Israel had come to an end. Simon and his men entered the fort singing hymns of praise and thanksgiving while carrying palm branches and playing harps, cymbals, and lyres. Uh, You you, you can see what's happening in the audience is that it's almost getting out of control. All of these prophetic symbols and images of kingship are coming to pass. Jesus is on the colt and he's on the donkey. Cloaks are in front of the donkey. Palm branches are being laid down and then the crowd erupts. They erupt into song singing, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna was a phrase for save us. It comes from Psalm chapter 118 beginning in verse 25. Lord, save us. Heal us, restore us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. Uh, This is the wildest pep rally you've ever been to. It's the wildest celebration rally. Everything is culminating in Jesus becoming king. And Jesus approaches the gates of Jerusalem and you would imagine that he would shout at the top of his lungs in joy. He has finally reached Jerusalem and now he is going to become 
king. But when Luke recounts this story, he says, and as Jesus came closer to the city, he saw it. And when Jesus sees the city, he begins to weep over the city. He begins to grieve over the city. It's not quite the response you would imagine Jesus having. And he begins to say this to Jerusalem. If you only knew today what was needed to bring you peace. If you only knew today what was needed to bring you healing. If you only knew today what was needed to bring you wholeness. If you only knew today what was needed to bring you restoration, you would act differently because this is what Jesus knows. He has been teaching about the kingdom of God leading up to this moment. And when he enters the city, he will enter the temple and he will continue to teach. But one of the things that he will find is that his people, the people that hear his words, they won't do what he's asking them to do. Jesus is for his people. He wants to lead them in the way of peace. He wants to lead them in the way of joy. He wants to lead them in the way of healing and of redemption and of restoration. But as he looks upon the city he's about to enter, he simply exclaims, if you only knew today what was needed for peace, you would act differently. Jesus knows it's precisely the people that are marching him into Jerusalem that are in a few days going to shout, crucify him, crucify him, give us Barabbas instead. And so we ask ourselves the question, what is Jesus looking for? What are the things that bring peace? You see, if we're all honest with ourselves, we all want peace. We all want wholeness. We all want restoration. We all want God's presence and God's healing in our life. We all want God to make all things new, but oftentimes we don't know where to start. We all hear that, that phrase, uh, success is not a destination. It's a journey. The good things in life are not a destination. They are a journey. These people, the people of God, they just want the end goal. They want the end game. They simply want their lives to be restored, but they don't know how to go about doing it. They don't know what's needed for peace, for shalom. Jesus says this in John chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. It says, so Jesus said to those who believed in him, if you obey my teaching." And this is such an interesting phrase. It's such an interesting declaration. Jesus is firm. It's not just if you hear my teaching. It's not just if you can recite my teaching. It's not just if you can memorize my teaching. Jesus says, if you obey my teaching, if you do what I'm asking you to do, then you're my disciples. Disciples simply means my disciplined ones. Those who day in and day out aren't just hearers of the word, they are also doers of the word. This is what Jesus says about faithful people. This is what Jesus says about consistent people. This is what Jesus says about people that obey 
obey his words, that do what he's asking them to do. When you do this, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. One of the things we find about Jesus and the gospel of Luke and here in John is that Jesus is deeply invested in the peace and the freedom of his people. We shouldn't be surprised that oftentimes we may walk in here and think that Jesus isn't concerned. Jesus isn't concerned with our peace. He isn't concerned with our freedom. He isn't concerned with what's happening in the workplace. He isn't concerned with what's happening in our families. He isn't concerned with what's happening in our school. It seems as if the spiritual life is off over here, but seeking peace, seeking wholeness, seeking freedom is something that I have to do on my own. But when we come to the scriptures, we find that Jesus is deeply invested in the peace and the freedom of his people. What grieves the heart of God is that his people just don't know what's needed. They don't know what's needed for peace. They don't know what's needed for freedom. And Jesus says here, he says here before his disciples, if you want to be free, if you want peace, you just can't, you can't just listen to my words. You just have to, you have to do them. You can't just recite my words. You have to obey them. You can't just memorize my word. You have to practice them. And, and, and this is where the rubber meets the road. This is what actual discipleship is. Discipleship is faithfulness and consistency to walk the way of Jesus. To open up the text on Sunday evenings. To open up the text in our community groups. To open up the text at home. To read the words of Jesus and say, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And if I want this to set me free, i got to practice it. To read that generosity is better than greed, so now I have to practice it. That loving my enemies is better than being indifferent to my enemies, so now I have to practice it. But here's what Jesus says. If you begin to do this, if you begin to love your enemies, which is difficult... If you begin to be generous, which is difficult. If you begin to be selfless, to put yourself last, which all these things are difficult, we stumble upon peace. We stumble upon freedom. And so Jesus, on this amazing Palm Sunday during the church calendar, we see Jesus sitting outside of Jerusalem looking at his people grieved because they don't know what's needed for freedom. They don't know what's needed for peace. And Jesus, it's precisely discipleship that is needed. The faithful, consistent practice of his word. It's why around EV Free we are so big about consistency consistently showing up in a space like this on Sunday evenings to worship. Because there's something about it that leads us down the pathway of discipleship. It's why we're so big on community groups and praying with each other because it leads us down the pathway of discipleship. It's why we we invite people to serve and to read their Bibles and to pray in their homes with their, their spouses and their families and their roomies because it moves us down the pathway of discipleship. And here's the best news in the world. The path of discipleship is the pathway to peace. 
The pathway of discipleship is the pathway to freedom. Peace in our homes. Peace with our friends. Peace with our families. Peace in the workplace. Peace in the marketplace. Man, when I survey my life, that's what I want more than anything else. I want a life of shalom, of peace, of wholeness, and of freedom. And so I consistently find in the text the call to return to discipleship, to consistently and faithfully practice the words of Jesus. That's our call tonight on Palm Sunday, to not just be hearers of the word, but to be doers of it. Because it's in the doing where there's peace and there's freedom. So we just want to spend a few minutes worshiping together, asking the Holy Spirit to come and to do something in us, to say, Holy Spirit, I'm not faithful right now, I'm not consistent right now, but I want to be. I want to be a disciple. I want to journey down this road. Can we pray together? Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for your heart towards us, that your heart towards us is good. Your heart towards us is for peace. Your heart towards us is for freedom. Your heart towards us is for goodness. And so, Father, we want to respond in these moments. We want to respond by saying yes. And so with every head bowed, every eye closed, if tonight, and we're not going to embarrass anybody, no one's going to stand up, but if you want to say yes to a pathway of discipleship, and you may have been on one previously, or this may be your first time in a church, but if you simply say, yeah, I, I, I want peace in my life. Yeah, I want freedom in my life. I, I want to pray for you. If you just want to raise your hand right now, I want to pray for you. And I see that hand. I see that hand. I see that hand. You can, you can lower your hands. If you raise your hand, I would just encourage you, stick around after service for a little while. Come, come find me in the lobby. Find me outside. I would just love to meet you. I, I'd love to learn your name. I'd love to encourage you. And so, Father, I pray for everyone that just raised their hand right now, that there's something in their heart that's resonating, saying, I, I want your peace, Father. I want your freedom, Father. I want to say yes to discipleship. I, I want to say yes to following you, to obeying your teachings. And so for everyone that just raised their hand, Holy Spirit, would you fill them even right now? Would you fill them with your peace, with your freedom? Would you fortify their heart to begin to walk out this life of discipleship? And for all of us in here, it's what we all want. So Father, would you come and do what only you can do? Would you call us to discipleship and help us to pursue and to walk after you? It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Can we stand together as we worship?